Hello, and a warm welcome to this podcast, part of the Church of England's Living in Love and Faith initiative. In this episode, we're discussing the biblical ideals of life, friendship, and marriage, placing them in wider society where moral etiquette and practice sometimes seems at odds with the church's ideals. The starting point for this LLF podcast is The Hungry 5000, as recounted in the Gospel of John. That miraculous drama, a communal feeding by way of an al fresco banquet of five barley loaves and two fishes with a reported 12 baskets left over. Similarly, today, we sit down together with dissimilar others and let ourselves be nourished by Christ all on level ground in a spirit of mutual engagement, accepting differences but working towards common understanding and fellowship. Hopefully we're all set. My name is Stuart Henderson and I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. And with me are four theological sages gathered from three of the Living in Love and Faith research groups as we bring you life, friendship, marriage and listening. Now, it could perhaps be said that in many ways the living in love and faith idea entreats a return to the early Christian mystical practice of hearing God, both in the silence and in those who may be speaking God through their pain, their dissonance, their not being heard. And my four guests, who very graciously, I hope, will be putting up with me asking some getting-under-the-skin questions, bring extraordinary insight to our topic. The Right Reverend Dr Christopher Coxworth has served as Bishop of Coventry since 2008, prior to which he was Principal of Ridley Hall, Cambridge. With a degree in Theology from the University of Manchester, Christopher is also an editorial member of the Multifaith Peace Charter for Forgiveness and Reconciliation and he's Chair of the Living in Love and Faith Coordinating Group. The Right Reverend Beverly Mason a former stockbroker and humanitarian aid worker, was consecrated Bishop of Warrington in the Diocese of Liverpool in the autumn of 2018. She came to faith whilst backpacking in Africa in 1994 as a result of a mountaintop experience. She studied theology at Chichester and Bristol. The Reverend Canon Dr Jessica Martin is a residentiary canon at Ely Cathedral. Her duties there include outreach and education. She's a former fellow and lecturer in English literature at Trinity College, Cambridge, and was a contributor to the 2008 book of reflective essays, Praying for England, Priestly Presence in Contemporary Culture. Professor Simon Oliver is Van Mildert Professor of Divinity at Durham University. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1999 and is a former acting dean of Jesus College, Cambridge and past chaplain of Hartford College, Oxford. Simon's research focuses on theology, metaphysics and the doctrine of creation. His book on the subject, his most recent, is called Creation, a Guide for the Perplexed. Christopher, as I mentioned, the LLF pilgrimage begins in the Gospel of John with the feeding of the 5,000. We're invited to become part of that 
restless, needy crowd. What was the thinking behind starting there? Well, I think it's something to do with John's Gospel, which has been quite an inspiration as we've travelled the LLF journey. What we have here is Jesus uh, inviting people to sit down, uh, to be together, um, to go on being together, uh, to recognise their hunger together, and uh, to be fed together, to be sustained in life together. And that seemed to be what LLF is, is about in, in many ways, an invitation to be together, um, to learn together, to share uh, one's um, hungers uh, together, and to gather uh, around this remarkable person uh, that we've all been drawn to and found ourselves giving our lives to in all the differences of our lives, uh, Jesus, and, uh, and finding in him uh, the one who satisfies our hunger and, um, and, and finds for us some answers uh, through life. Beverly, although we're talking about the theology of life, relationships, and in particular, marriage. Very early on in your Christian life, you felt a call to singleness. For those who are in a similar position to yourself, uh, single and, and celibate, what do the LLF resources say to those believers? The material uh, acknowledges the complexities of singleness almost all people at some point are, are single and people who are in relationship may find themselves living a celibate life within a relationship or through an accident of sorts. Uh, some people will opt for a, a celibate fast. This is not unusual during period of Lent. So in terms of singleness and, and for people such as myself, um, I'm delighted that uh, I'm part of the LLF team and that um, that, that people who are called to this particular way of life actually do have a voice uh, and there is an expression within the material. I think it's very important that we honour who we are, where we are, what we're called to, how we're living out our particular vocations. Jessica, I mentioned your contribution to the series of essays in my introduction, Praying for England, and, and you write in that book of staying with the intractable the need for the priestly discipline of attention. Is, is that something which you think has applied to the work that's gone in to living in love and faith? Absolutely. If I were to draw an analogy with the feeding of the 5,000, I think uh, one of the things I'd want to say is that this much-discussed set of topics might feel like a rather small basket of nourishment for some people after so many years of back and forth uh, about it. But it's intractability. I think one of the things that we've been shown is that while it's no less intractable now, I think, than it was when we started thinking about it, it is an, a, an extraordinarily rich area in terms of the complexities of people's lives, of the different ways in which people's relationships form them and matter to them and indeed damage them. And I'm hoping that one of the things that the resources can do is to show that something that looks as if it might be a very small zero-sum game is actually something much richer and much more nourishing. 
Simon, at the beginning of the LLF book, there's a bidding to examine ourselves with a confession of past errors by the church institution and its congregations towards the LGBTI plus community. And the admission is perhaps that we need to rediscover the practice of the compassion of Christ. From your perspective, the question arises, how did that compassion then get lost in the first place, or at the very least mislaid? I think that over recent generations, the church has learned to be much more attentive to the, the broad and rich depth of, of human lives and the, the different kinds of relationships that can give life. And the church's attention has been, through periods of its history in all kinds of ways, extremely narrow, myopic, uh, and it hasn't paid attention properly, and that's part of the sinfulness of the church. And I think that one aspect of the work of the Spirit in the life of the church is to broaden that vision and to deepen that attention. And I think the LLF process is part of, of course, part of repentance for the church's narrowness of vision and its lack of attention. It's over-attention to itself, and it's learning again to attend to different forms of human experience, different forms of human testimony, and the way in which it can learn to see, under the inspiration of the Spirit, life-giving forms of relationship and friendship. And I, so I think the LLF process is about precisely widening that attention and deepening that attention by paying attention to the whole church. Um, and so this is why it's a learning process within the church, I think. And part of that can be uh, a very deep penitence for times when the church's vision has been far too narrow and far too shallow. And Beverly, is, is the LLF vision then the beginning of this penitence and the framing of a new way of thinking in the Church of England? I don't know that it's quite so prescriptive as that, but we're certainly trying to encourage this. We're presenting something that's really rather unique, bringing uh, incredible uh, insight into complex conversations. Um, going back to your earlier conversation about the church uh, being an institution that has uh, so inhibited freedom, I came to faith uh, there was a definitive moment uh, during a period of conversion as I was traveling, but it was on Table Mountain where I knew my life could never be the same again. I had encountered the risen Christ and the freedom that I experienced in that, that moment was, uh, it's indescribable. And then I came back to the UK and of course got involved with the church and found it the most prohibiting <laughs> experience and uh, and whereas I'd been praying without realizing it suddenly I was having to learn how to pray and how to uh, inhabit the space within a church and and it, it caused a terrible rub so this is a, a white relatively economically comfortable uh, human being coming into a middle-class pretty much establishment finding it an incredibly alien place to be um, a place where actually questions weren't uh, welcome. Uh, so 
What I'm really hoping and praying uh, LLF is going to do is provide um, a culture, help to shape a culture where people can encounter one another uh, and not be fearful, not be suspicious, but actually um, enable conversations to, to take place uh, and relationships to, to form. Once relationships start to form, then prejudice start to diminish, don't they? Uh, and uh, so within that, that kind of gambit, that's when penitence will really happen. If we're prescriptive about penitence, it's not going to work. Off the back of that, then, what does penitence look like? Penitence has to come from repentance, doesn't it? And repentance can only come from an acknowledgement that things have gone wrong, that something is separating us uh, from um, the, the desire and the purpose, the design of God. Because actually, we have a God who purposefully is drawing all things together in his love. Uh, and so when the church is divisive, we have to look at what is going on, why and how. Uh, and by the recognition, the identifica- uh, identification and recognition, we can then do something about it. And it must begin with us coming onto, uh, falling onto our knees and acknowledging before God and before one another, we have sinned, we have got it wrong. Simon, what does penitence look like to you? The difficulty with penitence really is that it becomes very oppressive if people feel that, that this is an individualistic task. And when we're in church, we do confess our wrongdoing together. We, we confess communally. And the reason we do that is that we cannot neatly draw the boundaries of sin and wrongdoing such that I can say, I'm culpable for this, but not for that. So I think it's absolutely right, of course, that repentance is literally turning around to face God, but it's also in the process turning around to face each other. And that, of course, is is by no means a simple process. It can't be subject to any institutional formula. It's got to be an aspect of the lived life of the body of the church. But there is no formula for this, and I think it's it's always incumbent upon the church to renew its life of penitence, and but not to be overly negative about that, to, to, to also receive the life of forgiveness. And learning forgiveness, the way of forgiveness, is, is again a lifelong work of the body of Christ. Uh, forgiveness is a grace. Jessica, anything further to add? We, we've been talking in a very kind of easy way about the church, um, but it's not just one institution even, but a series of institutions which are human institutions and because they're institutions they've built up structures and they've built up boundaries of various kinds and some things are put beyond those boundaries and other things are put within those boundaries. Um, and it's one of the potential strengths of the Church of England is that it sits between a model of a um, an institutional church which simply declares here are the boundaries and it will be a very very slow and uh, top-down process to alter any of those boundaries Um, and a much more fissile process where when particular groups of Christians disagree they simply split off from each other and start a new church. It has on the whole endeavoured not to break up when it disagrees and therefore within its quite generous ambit there are people who profoundly disagree including disagreeing about what the church should be penitent for 
I mean, you've asked the question in a very general way, and I'm, I'm grateful that you have. But we aren't, at this point, talking about what we should be saying, we, whoever we is, should be saying sorry for. And I think that what I see in the LLF process that I don't think I've seen before is an attempt to say, can we collectively, rather than just top down, discern what the Spirit is saying to the churches, rather than having a process in which very few are involved and in which the the kind of spiritual histories of the members of the body have been often left out. And I hope that can happen. That would be grace to me. The classical pianist Alfred Brendel reminds us that the word listen contains the same letters as the word silent. Now, if you're a consumer of news or political debate programmes, it's perhaps difficult to find much of either. The culture there is more about piercing an opponent, not pausing, taking in and weighing with generosity. Silence isn't good for the ratings. But how does that level of polarity in public life affect our lives and the reciprocal relationships that we have? Jessica, if the ideal for a relationship then, from a biblical perspective, is rooted in mutuality, fruitfulness, love, loyalty, support, what's the LLF message towards those who carry the wounds of abandonment, those who've only known the absence of love in their lives? When you listen to another person, you are trying to see them as fully and as clearly as you possibly can without letting, in a way, letting yourself get in the way. Attentiveness is a process of self-forgetfulness, of, 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 of absolute attention on the other person and on um, the things that may not be immediately easy to see about that person. People who have been not listened to or not had that attention paid to them um, are people, if you like, who haven't been seen. People for whom that attention has not been paid. So it seems to me profoundly important that whatever else the LLF process was to do, it needed to do some serious paying attention that had, if you like, no agenda. So the, the, the challenge, I think, for everyone involved has been, could you go somewhere you didn't want to go because you could see in someone else a truth that you hadn't noticed before? Staying with the benefits and difficulties of relationships, the, the LLF vision encourages engaging with those of different convictions who may have an interpretation of scripture that rejects and condemns LGBTI plus Christians. How do you think relationships can begin when, if you like, battle lines are so clearly defined at the outset? I'm going to have to use uh, polarised language. How do you counsel the opposition to come into somebody else's shoes? Christopher? We've tried to avoid 
getting into debating mode. Um, early on, I was uh, uh, reminded by another church leader who had been through this sort of uh, discussion, which had turned into a debate, that if you debate, you hate, or if you debate, you end up hating. And uh, we, can, we can understand the pressure for debate. We can understand the, uh, the great longing for uh, some uh, decisions. Uh, but we've said, hang on, let's just be together for a while and let's try to, as we've said, I think beautifully, let's try to attend to each other and let's see each other, see one another as people who are gathered around the same Jesus. Does LLF see itself then not so much a mission statement, a debating chamber, but more about giving people an unconditional welcome or even a fellowship of safety? Beverly. LLF seeks to provide a safe space where people can have conversations. So the public discourse uh, really resonates of what Christopher, you're talking about the debate. What we're seeing in the, in the political world uh, and in public discourse is that uh, either you're with me or you're, you're my enemy. Uh, and LLF is having no truck with that. And it's endeavouring to provide that safe space where people um, can enter the conversation. Uh, they can, um, they can uh, enter into the learning um, experience. Um, they may uh, leave that safe space with more questions than answers. Uh, but actually that's providing a fertile ground for learning and so that has to be good. The Anglican service of marriage begins with the words, God is love and those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. The expectation being that the divine permeates the matrimonial ceremony, although probably not the best man's speech. Christopher Coxworth, with its origins in the Old Testament scriptures, can you talk us through the gift of marriage as it's described in the LLF book, the foundations, the history, and the biblical symbolism of the so-called honourable estate? Well, the book talks about three goods or gifts of, of marriage, three structures to it, three dimensions in which uh, marriage uh, can bring us to life uh, and and one is mutuality the faithful sharing of life between two people which is uh, powerfully and dramatically expressed in the uh, in the liturgy of marriage in the actions of marriage in the in, in the words of the marriage service and then of course the prayer is that they will go on being lived out uh, uh, through the marriage itself, uh, great promises of fidelity uh, that one person makes to another to be available for uh, that person, for the good of that person. Um, also knowing that as these um, promises are made mutually, that person is there for the good of you. And uh, that's one dimension. Another dimension or a good of marriage which the book talks about is fruitfulness, the capacity of marriage to, uh, to bring life, especially and powerfully 
to bring life to another human being through their coming together as two people, uh, literally one flesh. And then there's a, a third uh, dimension, a third good, and that's the way marriage can be a sign, a sign of something beyond itself, a sign of the faithfulness of God, the life-givingness of God, and uh, the way God uh, holds on to us through thick and thin and is always there uh, for us. That being so, uh, marriage as the template, then how do we explain God's intention in the context of the pressures of modern life and the reality of marriages going horribly wrong? Jessica? Well, I think marriage is terribly risky. And the reason it's terribly risky is because you put everything that you are into somebody else's hand and they put everything that they are into your hand. I think one of the reasons why it's used as such a potent metaphor for the love of God for his people um, is because the kind of exclusive attention that it implies between um, God and humanity is the thing that people long for in a way that people deeply desire to be absolutely seen and absolutely known but it's also the most dangerous thing you can possibly do um, it can mean that the you can do deep damage to somebody else because you have deep access to what makes them themselves. Simon, did you want to come back? Yeah, I, and this isn't to over-romanticise this because marriage is hugely risky. It's the riskiest thing you can do, putting yourself into another's hands. Um, American theologian Stanley Harvis, who said that marriage after 20 or 30 years is about learning to live with a decision you made when you were 25 and you didn't know what on earth you were doing. And that's quite a good way of putting it, really. And that does point to the challenge that every human being has to live faithfully. And living faithfully with one other person is enormously difficult and can be extremely painful and quite costly. But at the same time, it is one of the ways in which we can also realize some of the extraordinary depths of our of our humanity as well as reflective of the fidelity of god jessica i wanted to say something about the nature of choice i think um one of the things that happens when you marry somebody else is that you have said that you have promised that you will give the whole of your life to that person and they've promised they'll give the whole of their life to you. So one of the things you've done is to radically narrow the choices of your life to this one thing. I mean, obviously you'll do other things, uh, you know, perhaps professionally, or uh, what, what it means will change, you'll change. But, um, but what, what it doesn't allow for is 20 years down the line to think, oh, there are all these things I haven't tried. There are all these people I haven't known. Uh, there are all these experiences I haven't had. And they are my right. And they are more important than keeping on with this person who, by now, I really know rather well and find often very, very irritating. Um, what it stands 
at a very difficult angle to is, is a very common cultural message, which is that you can, in fact, have as many things as you've got time to do before you die. This is saying, I know that I'm just a mortal creature who'll die sooner or later. And there's a whole lot of things I'm going to decide not to experience because instead I'm going to just stick with this one person. Yes, um, one way of thinking about marriage is that, of course, in some ways it does restrict your choices in life, but it also sets you free to live a particular kind of life. Uh, And it can give you the freedom to explore faithfulness and intimacy and love and so on and so forth by committing one to another. So I think in one sense, culturally, marriage does seem like an odd thing to do because it does apparently uh, inhibit your freedom of choice. On the other hand, I think it does teach you certain things about how to live well, how to live the good life, particularly the virtue of fidelity, patience, forgiveness, generosity, so on and so forth. And we do see something of God in that, I think, of God's commitment to his people. When there was nothing, there was I, lighting volcanoes, stretching the sky, sketching the veins of an acorn leaf, painting the gloss on the tiger's teeth. So goes a poem I wrote a very long time ago. As Simon, as someone steeped in the study of metaphysics, the pursuit of understanding of our very existence, have we become disconnected from as John Gospel intimates, the wonder of how we became. The way that we live culturally at the moment, we're given to a huge amount of consumption. And the the Christian doctrine of creation says that our life and creation itself is uh, much more like a gift than it is a commodity. And therefore it bears meaning and it mediates a relationship. And it mediates a relationship between God, the donor, and his creatures, the recipients. And it therefore makes a claim on us. You've been given your life and therefore the question is, what are you going to do with that gift? And one way of thinking about our most intimate relationships, including our relationships with marriage, is precisely as a pattern of gift giving and receiving. You know, this evening I'm going to cook for my family a meal. They will receive that as a gift of my awful cooking abilities and my time and so on and so forth. Um, They give counter gifts as well. Uh, My children do things for me, they make things for me, my wife does things for me, and so on and so forth. And all these gifts bear something of the giver to the recipient. Um, And therefore they help to express and form relationships of mutuality and life sharing. And this is why the notion of the gift is so important when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church. But also the Holy Spirit at the beginning of creation brooding over the face of the waters where God gives life um, and gives food for life. And marriage is part of that gift of God in creation, as is friendship and fundamentally love. Those deep themes of the gift of life and the gift of life being lived out together seem to me to be very much uh, what the living in love and faith project is about receiving this gift of life and then discerning together how what what it means to live life fully 
together as a human race, as the church community, and in those relationships of friendship and intimacy that bring us life together. Does our angst over identity, gender and sexuality, real as it is, mean we're in danger of mislaying the middle of God's heart, i.e. first and foremost, that we are made in the image of God? Jessica? I guess my really short answer to your question is I think it is. Um, And I wonder how much it is a ground that the church even chose. Um, it seems to me that, to some extent, it's a response to, to wider social preoccupations around identity and selfhood, around what it might be to be fulfilled uh, within, you know, what you could actually call gender wars, really, over, over, over certainly the course of my lifetime and longer. And that, in a way, we've always been playing on somebody else's ground, Um I almost feel we've never we've never been able to start in the right place uh, because uh, and you can see very often sort of church discussions about this trying to reset to what is it to be a human being what is it to be a human being what is it that's holy about being a human being and then being pulled back into questions that are pre-secularized in a way I can't see very clearly why we ended up being so seriously at odds on these particular issues but it does really surprise me that it is these issues that hurt the church so badly. Beverly? For me I'm not so surprised just profoundly saddened uh, because I think um, we have always been at risk of conforming God to the image of our heart rather than allowing ourselves to be conformed to God and uh, we want a God I think uh, who will who will perform the tricks that we desire and will meet us in our particular needs as and when and so for very many people God is profoundly disappointing of course when we do that then we have a God that's conformed to our, our own prejudices this is the time of Covid it's also the time of um, of outrage and protest and we're seeing that uh, actually there are very many persecuted people uh, in society and and within the church so at the risk of doing a whole circle here there's a lot that we have to be repentant for and check our blind spots uh, and give voice to the voiceless to look and to listen and facilitate these these conversations so that we are forever being conformed to the heart of God and not vice versa. Christopher? What I've certainly discovered through this work together is that it's absolutely vital that everybody feels and knows themselves to be made in the image of God and that we stand together before God as people who are made in God's image and that I think belongs to the heart of God and where we have found ourselves ensuring that people or everybody involved in this conversation feels that that is the starting point 
that we are all equal before God, as made in the image of God, then we can get going into a much more confident and trusting conversation. And Simon, finally. The notion of the image of God in the human person is a really difficult one. It's one that the tradition has wrestled with an awful lot. Um, and it seems to me that the image of God consists rather in two things. First of all, in our origin as creatures of God, we are God's work, but also in our end or our goal. And um, our end or our goal is to share fully and eternally in the life of God. So the image of God consists in a shared beginning and a shared end, Christ the Alpha and the Omega. And it's as if Christ bookends every human life as the origin and the end. And that's where our image is found, in that common beginning and that common end. And that's shared by every single human person. And that's really where we've got to begin and end, I think, the LLF process, is recognising that in that sense, everyone is in the image of God as having a common beginning and end in Jesus Christ. Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast. And my thanks to Christopher Coxworth, Beverly Mason, Jessica Martin and Simon Oliver. We look forward to your future company and should you wish to rate or even review this podcast, we will be very grateful. Please do tell your friends and fellow church members about living in love and faith and you'll discover further resources at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you for listening.